I'm Caleb Brown, host of the Cato Daily Podcast, and I'd like to take this small bit of time out of your listening to ask you to support the Cato Institute and the Cato Daily Podcast by becoming a podcast sponsor. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and give a donation in any amount to support our work. If you donate $1,000 before the end of the year, I'll give you a shout out on the podcast. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started. You can also designate a friend or loved one to receive the benefits of being a Cato sponsor. Thank you for supporting the Cato Institute and the values of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, December 21st, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. How private are banks that receive special privileges from the feds? What was the problem the Federal Reserve was created to solve in the first place? Jeffrey Lacker is the most recent former head of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. We spoke at the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference last month. For people who are only aware of the Federal Reserve uh, as this sort of I don't know, it's sort of distant institution that does a bunch of things that we don't know. We don't really follow. Most people don't follow it. They'll follow their interest rate on their mortgage or an interest rate on savings and checking and that sort of thing to the extent that they're able to get anything on savings or checking. But uh, you know, going back in time, what was the problem that uh, policymakers were attempting to solve in creating the Federal Reserve? It's an interesting question because in the crisis, in the most recent financial crisis, a lot of people claimed that the Fed was founded to address financial crisis, the implication being address it the way that we addressed it now. But that's not really the case at all. So there were financial crises, banking panics in the late 1800s. And uh, the problem they were addressing is in, in those panics is that the supply of hand-to-hand currency was limited because of the collateral requirements uh, on national banks that issued that hand-to-hand currency. And in uh, times of year like the fall and the winter months when people were need, needed more currency and less deposits in order to move mar- crops to market and to shop for the holidays and the like, uh, the demand for currency went up. It flowed out of the banking system, and interest rates actually were 100 basis points higher in the fall than in the spring on average. Uh, a Sort of a bizarre s- system, and we'd bring in gold from overseas and the like. Um, what happened in f- banking panics is that there'd be concerns about the uh, solvency of an individual institution and um, or a couple of institutions and depositors would try and convert their deposits into currency and they'd get a lot of currency out and that would drain some of the currency supply and there wasn't an easy way for the system to expand the supply of currency when people wanted to shift from currency into gold or, or what have you. And um, from deposits, I'm sorry, deposits into currency and gold. So um, it was called, it was the problem that the the supply of currency wasn't elastic. They had an elasticity problem. And so the you see in the Federal Reserve Act, the title of the act is to furnish begins with to furnish an elastic currency. And that was the that was the entire idea. So the idea had to do with the monetary liabilities uh, that the central bank, the Fed issued. It wasn't for the Fed to lend to institutions who couldn't borrow money. 
That was entirely separate. In fact, there were proposals at the founding of the Fed to include deposit insurance, and they didn't want that because the experience at the time suggested that that engendered too much moral hazard, and they were against rescuing failed institutions who had bad management or had made bad loans. Who was H. Parker Willis? H. Parker Willis, fascinating guy, studied at uh, the University of Chicago in the 1880s uh, with uh, Lawrence Laughlin, a monetary economist, a prominent monetary economist at the time, uh, went to teach at Washington and Lee University uh, in Southwest Virginia, Lexington, Virginia, um, then went to to Washington. He was an editor for um, a, a national business publication uh, and uh, became uh, Carter Glass, uh, the advisor, economic advisor to Carter Glass in 1913 uh, when Carter Glass was the head of the House Banking and Currency Committee, um, now the House Financial Services Committee, and um, it advised him in the process of drafting what became the Federal Reserve Act. Uh, Carter Glass um, took the the lead on that drafting and um, uh, Parker Willis was his main advisor. Given what the Federal Reserve has done since 2008, we are well beyond, and in fact, we've been well beyond, even beyond, even going back further, well beyond what the purpose of the Federal Reserve was supposed to be, as you say, creating an elastic currency. That's right. And th- the interesting thing is the way the, the role of the Fed's credit extension authorities and abilities have morphed over time. At the beginning, that was just the way to increase the money supply. So you've got a a set of institution reserve banks and they're going to provide an elastic supply of monetary liabilities. What assets would that institution hold? Well, um, government bonds were right out because of the association with wartime finance in the sense that if you let money be backed just by government bonds, government would sort of... uh, you know, impose upon the, the the institution the obligation to issue. I mean, you get inflationary finance, and there are plenty of examples of that. So that was too undisciplined. So they they wanted something that would deliver the right sort of quantity of of money uh, over time. Uh, they settled on. Um, something based on the the real bills theory it came to be called, which is the notion that if uh, the lending, if the the monetary uh, liabilities issued were based, were backed by uh, lending by banks that was connected with the real needs of commerce, um, that then the supply of money would would expand when the needs of commerce dictated that there was a need for more money and then would contract commensurately when it uh, the opposite was true. And th- there's a number of fallacies involved in that, and so it became discredited. And pretty soon after the Federal Reserve Act, the Fed's uh, monetary policy became divorced from lending in the sense that they started to acquire government securities to help finance World War One. By the mid-20s, they discovered that open market purchases of, of treasury securities were sort of a more effective way for them. Uh, to influence monetary conditions than um, lending. And part of the reason is that they could do it without having their fingerprints on interest rate changes, whereas a discount rate change was highly visible and uh, exposed them to political attack. So did did the fact that the Federal Reserve uh, began engaging in sort of open market operations Participating in market in financial markets in in a direct way, mm-hmm. uh, did that serve to discipline the Fed at all in terms of its behavior? No, I, th- I mean I think it 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 clearly felt responsibility for price stability. I mean after the World War One, they took 
pretty dramatic actions to try and bring inflation back down again um, and um, felt that responsibility acutely in the 20s and I think did a, a reasonable job by historian standards of of doing that through the 20s where they fa- they failed in the early 30s um, because the real bills doctrine was leading the leading thinkers at the Board of Governors uh, astray. Uh, they thought policy was it was easy when it was really pretty tight. And what the Real Bills Doctrine gets you to do is focus on different types of credit. And the underlying thesis is that there, there are sound types of credit connected with commerce. And then there's speculative credit, excessive credit creation. That idea has not died. And just what its uh, sort of economic foundations are, I'm not quite sure. So I'm thinking back in time, if if you're talking about the Fed being called upon or, or being created to solve a problem in which interest rates go up in the fall and fall in, in the other seasons, that seems like an opportunity for people in a market to solve. What prevented the people in those markets from solving that problem? National banks had a monopoly on hand-to-hand currency. And there was this legal restriction that that currency issue had to be backed by uh, holdings of U.S. Treasury securities on a particular list, and it had to occur via a particular mechanism. They had to go into the. They had to contact a bank. A little so picture a little bank in, you know, Lexington, Virginia. They'd have to contact a, a correspondent bank to buy a, a Treasury security for them. They'd have to send that to the Treasury. The Treasury would get their plates off a. They'd print some notes. They'd package them up, insure them, send them. It would take you know weeks. Okay, so part of the problem then that the Federal Reserve was trying to solve by centralizing some of these activities right. was a technological one. Well, I view it as a problem with the legal regime under the National Bank Act. I think it was, in fact, it was widely recognized that one path to solving the problem was to just let national banks issue notes without that collateral constraint, backed just by the general assets of the bank. Um, they said on this system that essentially involves creating a nationalized universal membership clearinghouses. So the at the time, there were clearinghouses in the major cities. And when a, a banking panic occurred, they would sort of band together their members, back all their members' liabilities, and they would sometimes issue these illegal things called clearinghouse loan certificates that would circulate just like money to expand the money supply, but they wouldn't let people take their their assets out of the clearinghouse system. So clearinghouse had sort of a collective solution, but their membership was just the city banks. And because we had these, we also had these laws that prohibited branching. So unlike Canada, which had nationwide banks, um, we had these banks and cities State and clearinghouses, and then we had all these little country banks, and they called them country banks. And the country banks had these relationships with city banks, but the in a, a pinch, the city banks would sometimes cut them off and not ship them more currency to use to meet withdrawal demand. So in some sense, the problem they were solving was the governance of banking panic resolution arrangements that were dominated by the clearinghouses, perceived as dominated by the clearinghouses in the city, who decided life or death, who was going to be backed up and who wasn't. The country banks got cut off in the the panics. They wanted someone who they'd have some influence over, except for sort of this commercial relationship. So they 
the idea was you'd form these – the Federal Reserve Banks were formed as these clearinghouses for given regions and everyone in the region was entitled to be a member of the clearing the Federal Reserve Bank. And that's – that in some sense, the direct effect was just to nationalize what was going on and make it universal member and change the governance arrangement over the decision about who got currency in a, a panic. With historical context – Given what the fe- the powers that the Federal Reserve assumed in 2008 and beyond, uh, there's it's the authority is get, still not clear. What concerns does that raise? That the Federal Reserve, the the last two Fed chairs have said, you know, this was okay. It's okay that we did this, and it's okay that we're going to maintain uh, control of of these authorities going forward. Does it is it, is are there too many levers? Is that yeah. is that a problem? I, I think there's there are the the Fed is a has was given at the beginning these lending lending authority to banks at the discount window, in the depression and later there was an accretion of other powers thirteen three and the like. These are vestigial and these are tangential and unrelated to monetary policy, the core mission, but they offer this tremendous ability to the Secretary of the Treasury of the FDIC of off-balance sheet using federal, you know, uh, taxpayer resources. Um, they started doing that in the early 70s, late 60s and early 70s. We started with the FDIC rescuing uninsured investors in failing financial institutions. That set up expectations that I think pretty clearly led the financial system to behave in a way that relied on this implicit backstop and the expectation that the New York Fed would make sure everything worked out pretty well okay in the end. And I think that led large financial institutions to structure themselves in a way that that um, ran greater risks of liquidity problems that made themselves more vulnerable. So this moral hazard problem isn't just the cost of their funding. It's that it makes the funding that elicits Fed support more attractive relative to long-term debt. So these are for example. So how how do we think about those large banks then in terms of their their institutional role? Because if if these banks are essentially privileged in a way mm-hmm. that other banks are not, I mean, how private are they? It's a great question. They've been benefiting from you know an implicit insurance contract, an implicit line of credit. And problem is the ambiguity about the discretionary deployment of Fed lending authority. And that's a problem that hasn't been addressed. And that's a problem that is always problem is always most problematic in the early stages of a crisis where, you know, are they going to rescue Bear? Are they not? They rescued Bear. Does that mean they're going to rescue Lehman or not? And without clear boundaries, without a clear mandate without a clear set of policies about who we do rescue, who we don't rescue, policymakers are always driven to rescue the most because uh, if you fail to support, then the probability of you supporting a bunch of other people goes down and that causes volatility. So it's always going to be more attractive to extend the support, the expend, extend the implied line of credit to a broader range of people. And we've seen that over time. There's a calculation that uh, I got the some people at the Richmond Fed to do while I was there. The fraction of financial firms' liabilities, so the entire financial sector, all the firms, count up all their liabilities, what fraction benefit from explicit or implicit government support? 
government guarantees. Don't know. 60% now. In 1999, it was 45%. And that's with a pretty rigorous definition of implied support, which is established precedent or announced policy. So not, you know, speculating about who they're going to support. This is people they've supported before. And so people would have a good reason to believe they're going to support again. So uh, I've talked with several people about this and I'll, we'll close with this question. Um, with respect to rules versus discretion, it seems that a dual mandate allows uh, uh, monetary authorities to engage in all sorts of discretion. Should we get rid of the dual mandate? So that's a fascinating question. Um, I personally believe that the conduct of policy do would not be materially altered if we adopted a single mandate and the, the politics of getting rid of the dual mandate seem infeasible absent just squeaking it by with a narrow ma ma majority. And I'd, my my view is that the, the Fed shouldn't operate on a mandate that got by on a narrow and parson majority. So um, I'd prefer the Fed to try and navigate. I like Greenspan's old formulation, which is price stability is the best contribution the central bank can make to full maximum employment. Volcker's formulation as well. So in, and, in, in and as, work with it that way. In a sense, then, the Federal Reserve isn't observing a dual mandate and we're just sort of pretending that it's out there? Is that right? Well, yeah. So the downside of what I advocate is sort of leaving it alone is that it provides room within the committee to turn the dial in the direction of trying to provide short-run stimulus to employment. Uh, and that's just a fraught enterprise. But I, I think we've seen that tilt emerge in the last uh, two decades under the last couple of chairmen. Jeffrey Lacker is the most recent former head of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. We spoke at the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference last month. As we are now knee-deep in the season of giving, I'm asking you, the unflappable Cato Daily Podcast listener, to financially support our work promoting individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace by visiting cato.org slash podcast sponsor and learn about the benefits of sponsorship. That's cato.org slash podcast sponsor.